So finally we get to the joy of liberation, release. What might be considered an ultimate detachment or non-attachment? What's traditionally called the experience of Nibbana, enlightenment, complete awakening, the realization of the unborn, the deathless, the unconditioned. Interestingly, realization can be associated with a feeling tone of joy and happiness, sukha, or a feeling tone of evenness, of equanimity, with the mind kind of cooled out, chilled, of upeka. The feeling tone can vary, but both are classified as being states of happiness. The realization of Nibbana isn't a blessing that's bestowed on favored disciples. It's the result of a profound relinquishment, a complete dispassion towards sensory phenomena. The perception of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. Do you remember that? I spoke of dukkha the very first few sentences this morning. In between, there's been a lot of references to happiness. But now to realize Nibbana, we must circle back to our understanding, our full understanding of suffering. So this perception of dukkha, of suffering, is actually what brings insight, the insight that finally convinces us that there's just no point in craving more of this and more of that. Craving is what keeps us trapped in the cycle of suffering by deluding us into thinking that we'll be happy if only if we get more pleasant experiences and avoid the unpleasant experiences. As you practice insight meditation, vipassana, you'll see for yourself the impermanent and unsatisfactory nature of all things. You'll see the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of every experience of mind and body again and again and again. Until what? Until they stop changing? No, it's their nature to change. Until we finally get it until we finally understand that everything is impermanent and that what is impermanent cannot be a basis for our lasting happiness. Sure, we all know everything changes, right? It was cold in the morning, so we had the heater on. Then it got hot, and then it got, and then the, the tonight it's going to get cool again. Everything changes. The weather changes. Our experience changes. At different points of the day, we had more or less energy. Things change. If you don't know that your body's changing, just look at old pictures. At one point, you were this cute little baby, or this ugly little baby, who knows which. But anyway, you were this little baby, and you're not that little baby anymore. Something happened. Growth, change. And then imagine a picture of you in 20 years' time, 40 years' time, 50 years' time. Some of you will be old and some of you will be dust by then. Changing, changing, aging, death. Though we know that things are impermanent, do we know that grasping anything that is impermanent 
cannot bring us lasting happiness. Because as long as we are clinging to anything, we haven't gotten it. We haven't actually had this insight into the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned things. We haven't yet penetrated the truth of suffering. So what will it take us, what will it take for us to stop craving and clinging, to stop attaching, becoming attached to things that change? What will it take for us to stop grasping a hold of things that we already know are not ours? What will it take for us to see the unsatisfactory nature of experience clearly enough that our mind turns away from grazing in the field of sensual pleasures? Vipassana practices are designed to bring our attention face to face with this truth of change, the truth of the impermanent and unsatisfactory nature of every material and mental experience. Vipassana practice is about seeing clearly whether we like what we see or not. It can be difficult sometimes to face the truth of existence, but we practice again and again to see the nature of things as they actually are. It's not that we're making things be impermanent. It's not that we're making things be as they are. We are just practicing seeing them, knowing them, without distorting them through our concepts and our stories, our desires and our fears, without distorting them through elaborations that conceive them to be something other than the simple impermanent experiences that they are, the experiences that arise for a moment and then pass away. When we deeply contemplate impermanence, when we repeatedly see that all experience is impermanent, therefore unsatisfactory, as a basis for lasting happiness, and we see that what is impermanent and what is unsatisfactory is not fit to be called self, cannot be claimed to be mine, then we might just get fed up enough with grasping, enough to stop grasping, enough to cease clinging. We could say to let go and release. This is not an intellectual analysis. It's not like we decide, okay, I see it changing, so I'm going to agree to let it go. It's instead a vivid and unshakable insight. It arises out of becoming disenchanted with the attachment to all transitory phenomena, knowing that there's just... It's not that transitory phenomena is bad. It's the nature of body and mind. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's not even wrong. But it is not a foundation for our happiness. It's just a temporary sensation, a feeling that comes and goes, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. And at some point, when we see the impermanent nature of things clearly enough, we become dispassionate and not just let go of that particular problem, but we become dispassionate toward the entire field of mind and matter, 
we realize that no experience of mind and matter has the potential to make us happy. No relationship, no possession, no worldly accomplishment, no promotion at work, no amount of money in your bank account, not even winning the lottery. None of it is going to make you happy. This realization should not spiral you into a depression. Like, what else is there? Because by the time you have this insight as a penetrative, genuine insight into the nature of things, you will already have developed a resource of happiness that is not within the sensual realm. You'll understand that sensual pleasures are what are called hollow, impermanent, Not bad and evil, just impermanent. And so we stop craving. And what happens with the cessation of craving? With the cessation of craving, there's a cessation of suffering. And with the cessation of suffering, we realize the most exquisite state of sublime peace. It's sometimes called the great joy of release, the realization of Nibbana, or the state of peace. In the Sutta Nipata, it says, Impermanent are all formations. Their nature is to arise and vanish. Having arisen, they cease. Their appeasement is blissful. The insight into impermanence is blissful. The basic insight into impermanence, in Pali called anicca, is the spark for the most profound state of joy and ease. Contemplating impermanence is not a depressing experience of loss, and it should not produce feelings of insecurity. The contemplation of impermanence instead leads to non-attachment. That non-attachment is peaceful. It's the peace that comes with liberation, the peace of a free mind. Most meditators already know that letting go feels good. Because even with personal and minor insights, we tend to feel great happiness when we finally let go. You know you're having some problem. It's obsessing you in the meditation, right? Everybody's had that. You're sitting down, obsessing, 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 obsessing. And at some point, you get it enough to let it go. Isn't it a state of relief? Ah, finally, let that go. When you find how you've bit the hook, how you've grabbed a hold and are clinging to something that is causing you suffering, there's a great relief when we let it go. So we learn skills in meditation that help us to let go. We see for ourselves 
that not resisting the way things are and living with this truth of change is just easier, it's lighter, it's more joyful than anything we are attached to. Being with things as they actually are, even if what we're with is painful, is more more ease-filled, more joyful than even the best fantasy. Being with the truth of things is better than anything the mind can conjure up. I think most experienced meditators know that. If some of you are new to meditation, I don't want you to believe it, but I want you to find out for yourself. Because I am guarantee that there is no fantasy that is better than the here and now, no matter what is happening in the here and now. Insight meditation is remarkably elegant. The vivid perception of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, anicca and dukkha, We can see this clearly in relationship to any and every perception. Ordinary sensory encounters, what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, and sense. As well as refined meditative states. Even the impermanence and unsatisfactoriness of the refined states of concentration, of jhana, helps us turn the mind away from this age-old habit of grasping and attachment. This is the liberating teaching, and it's not a secret. What we need to see clearly is actually embedded in every moment of contact. We don't need to be in a retreat in a cave. We don't need to have mind-altering mystical experiences. But we may need to clearly see the impermanent and unsatisfactory condition of things. Does it sound sophisticated enough for you? Does it sound spiritual enough? The Buddhist teachings are remarkably practical. It's part of why I think they're so elegant. But the Buddha encouraged his practitioners at all levels of attainment to diligently see the impermanence of experience without faltering, without becoming lax. You might think, oh, that is probably just a beginner practice to have to see how things change. But even for the fully awakened one, the arhant, one who's completely liberated, the Buddha still encouraged the arhant to carefully attend to the experiences of mind and matter and see them as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty of self. He described this this practice as a practice that brings happiness. In the Samyutta Nikaya, he says, Friend, a bhikkhu who is an arahant should carefully attend to these five aggregates subject to clinging, as impermanent, as suffering, as a disease, as a tumor, as a dart, as a misery, as affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as empty, as non-self. There's just a bit of emphasis on the dukkha category in there. But it basically is still 
impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. For the arhant friend, there is nothing further that has to be done and no repetition of what he has already done. However, when these things are developed and cultivated, they lead to a pleasant dwelling in this very life and to mindfulness and clear comprehension. So let's have a meditation for a few minutes here. As you settle into the sitting experience, feeling the points of contact of the body with the floor and the chair, with the seat, sensing the alignment of the posture, feeling the breath move in the sitting posture. Notice some sensation that feels clear to you. Maybe it's the contact of the buttocks with the seat. I mean, we have been here all day. Maybe it's where the hands touch. Maybe it's the sensation of the belly rising or falling. or a place where your hair touches. Any clear sensation will do. And as you observe that sensation, please notice if it's pleasant, or if it's unpleasant, or if you would call it a neutral sensation. I'm inviting you to meditate on feeling, what in Pali is called Vedana, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of any experience. As you observe the sensation and the feeling tone that arises with that sensation, notice how the mind responds to that feeling. If it's pleasant, is there a leaning into it? Is there a craving or a wanting more? If it is unpleasant, is there a pushing away, a resistance, a wanting? it to go away. If it's a neutral experience, 
what is the quality of mind? Sometimes there's a confusion or an uncertainty, a lack of clarity around neutral experience. And then the mind craves something else, something clearer, something stronger, and wanders off, reaching toward other thoughts or sensations. After exploring a sensation for some moments, let the attention rest in a relaxed and spacious awareness of anything that you like, perhaps the simple experience of the breath, perhaps the arising and passing of sounds. Rest in a simple and clear connection. But notice that that too is changing. You might direct your attention again to the body, some point of sensation. What do you feel? As you observe the sensations, recognize the impermanence of them. Increasing, decreasing, starting and stopping, appearing and disappearing. Tingling, changing into vibration, changing into pulsing, changing into pressure. Perception always changing. Let the mind be at ease in the perception of impermanence. And then when something else calls your attention, another sensation, the movement of the breath, a sound, a thought, a mood, whatever. Give your attention to it, but look to see if it too 
is impermanent. if it too is changing. So we explore the nature of mind and body as impermanent phenomena. And we notice what happens when we experience something and feel the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, or the neutrality. Because when we observe the feeling tone and let the mind go into wanting states, we are enhancing the root of greed or strengthening greed. When we feel a painful feeling, and go into an aversive state, we are strengthening the roots of aversion. But when we see feeling and sensation arising and passing away as impermanent phenomena, then we are developing wisdom and have the potential for powerful insight to arise. Insight that arises as we see the nature of our own lived experience very clearly. That insight can bring the greatest peace, the unsurpassed happiness, the bliss of release. Trust your capacity to be with the truth of things.
to see the impermanence of all things and be unshaken by it. To open to that truth in the way that helps you to let go of all clinging and realize the deep peace of Nibbana for yourself. So I'd like to take the last 15 minutes of our time together to see if you have any questions you'd like to ask or any comments you'd like to make about the theme of happiness and anything that we've addressed throughout the day from the sections on virtue and renunciation, um, the development of appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, the happiness associated with concentration, with insight and liberation. Hopefully there's something in there that can stimulate a 15-minute discussion. What do you have, please? Um, just for the breathing meditation part, the instructions for Jhana. Um, I've often been taught to feel the sensation of the breath moving in the body, unquote. Right? And I can rest at the gate somewhat, but even then I feel like I'm... Uh, you know, I'm drawn to feeling the nostrils, I'm feeling the upper lip, and it's hard to distinguish what I'm feeling. Okay, this is an important distinction to make. Um, she's saying that in, in her Vipassana training, she was encouraged to feel the sensations of the breath. And now for the um, concentration meditation, I said, don't feel those sensations. And yet, it's, those sensations still are apparent. This is one of the challenges in, um, in uh, the development of various meditation practices, but it's not a challenge in a bad way. It's, um, it's, uh, one of the things we develop in meditation is mental skills, the skill to concentrate the mind, the skill to focus the attention, and what's called skill with the object. So we have to not only know what we're attending to, but how we're attending to it. Do we know when we're attending to the breath as breath? Or or are we noticing tingling and pressure sensations associated with the breath, which is really the tangible objects? 
So first we have to know what our object is. Once we know what our object is and we're focused and the mind is stable, then we can learn to hold that object in different ways, in various ways. Sometimes hold the object in a way that will incline towards the absorption states if that's the approach to meditation that we're undertaking at that time. And then shift the way that we're focusing our attention so that we can investigate, perhaps, for example, the quality of mind that is knowing the breath. Maybe we want to not look at the breath as the object, but now we want to look at the mental factors, the mental state, that quality of mind that is knowing the breath. So the mental state practices that we've done today would be to notice when um, uh, appreciative joy arose. That's a mental quality. To notice when loving kindness arises. To notice when desire arises or aversion arises. There we're taking the mental state as the object. Or to notice the changing aspects of the, the pressure and tingling and heat and cold. That's four elements practice. So one of the things that I found so um, engaging about the traditional practices that I've been doing for the last six or so years, six or seven years, I had been practicing for many years before that, 15, 20 years before that, I guess. I don't know, I'd have to calculate the math from the dates I started practicing, but some years before that, quite a while. But when I, when I undertook this traditional training that goes through step by step, I felt a lot of confidence in getting the foundations clear, in being really clear about the object, to really understanding uh, what was happening in the meditative state, and to be able to direct the attention in, 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 in very intentional and skillful ways. So, um, so it wasn't just a matter of sitting down and waiting for something to happen. Um, and hoping for the best. It was instead seeing what are the conditions of mind, what are the inclinations of mind, what are wholesome, what are unwholesome, and what do I actually want to do in the meditation practice. If I want to practice vipassana, I might emphasize the tingling, the pressure, the heat, the cold. If I want to emphasize jhana, then I will hold the object in a way that focuses on the stability of mind, the directing and sustaining attention to the breath itself. And it will take a little bit, if you've been doing one practice for many years, it might take a little bit to shift it over. But what you learn in that shift isn't that now this practice is better. I don't have a hierarchy of practices here. What we learn is skill. We learn to sometimes hold something this way and sometimes hold something this way. And we need to be able to hold our object skillfully, whether we want to absorb in that object or we want to hold it stable enough to see it clearly. We need to actually sometimes see something really clearly, reflect on it. So we learn a lot of meditative skills. And interestingly, the skill of letting go I spoke about primarily in the insight practice, but we learn tremendous skills of letting go doing the samadhi concentration practices, because how do we develop the deeper states of samadhi? Is it by getting more experience? No, it's by release. It's by letting go. All the progress through concentration is not a gaining of another experience. It's the letting go of the coarser states. And what arises when we've let go of the course is something more sublime, more subtle.
So it's all that development is all a, a very nuanced practice of letting go and relinquishment. So by the time we've practiced the samadhi, the concentration, we've developed skills not only in holding the object, which sounds like holding, it's not grasping, it's a stability of focus. And we've also developed skills in release and letting go. So that then when we start to see the impermanent, unsatisfactory nature of things, the mind is stable and able to hold it clearly so we're not sucked into this, oh no, everything's changing kind of fear. We're stable, we're seeing it as it is. And we're able to relinquish, to let go of what? The object? No, we let go of the craving. We don't need to let go of the object. Why? Because it's arising and passing anyway. We just let go of the clinging. We let go of the distortion of mind that thinks it can fix on things, that thinks it can make it last. It's changing on its own. Thank you for the question. Other question? Maybe I need my glasses to see what's back there. Impermanence. Ten years ago, I didn't need these to see. <laughs> Comments, questions, please. I'm going to form the question in a moment. When you're doing this last practice, you know, seeing the impermanence, uh, relinquishing desire, it also seems that the body mind is a desire. It's a desire machine. It's wired to desire. So, I mean, it's not that that would go away, right? Um, I mean, that's, you know, because that's the nature of existence. You have this desire body. And, uh, okay, you it's... You want a certain food or whatever, whatever it is. Okay, you're asking a very interesting question in the comment that, uh, in the commenting that the nature of the mind and body is like a desire machine, that it's very natural to have desires for things. And the question then comes, is desire going to end? Is that the implication of the meditation? But I do think that although desire is a strongly conditioned state and is very much a part of this... um, um, mind-body process that has come into this existence. That craving and clinging and this impetus of the kind of desire that in Pali is called tanha, which means thirsting after. Well, I say that as I'm holding water. <laughs> this thirsting after experience, this sense of lack of fulfillment that I'll be happy if I can get. This kind of craving and desire is not necessary. This is conditioned and this is what leads to suffering. Now there is another term in Pali that is also translated into English as desire. That term is chanda. And I think it might be a better translation to say aspiration or will. Because when we speak of chanda, sometimes it can be unwholesome wanting something that is not wholesome. But it also can refer and often does to the desire for liberation, the desire to act in, with compassion, the desire um, to um, care for um, other beings, you know, wholesome states, um, the desire to do anything, to meditate, to cultivate the mind, to act with generosity. 
to, you know, improve and grow. These are not unwholesome states at all. And this is more that chanda aspect that is of volition or of will or of um, um, aspiration. So sometimes we, in English, because we've had both of these terms translated into English as desire, we sometimes confuse the two. But the desire that leads to suffering is this craving that thinks we'll be happy when we get it. And it won't happen. It won't happen. When we see that the whole realm of mind and body isn't bad, there's nothing bad with it. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's the nature of things. But the craving will, at some point in the awakened state, fall away. Once that craving is absent, there can still be the desire of chanda that arises. Because there's still the desire to do good, to serve, to share, to um, uh, all the good, all the, to cultivate wholesome states. But that's not categorized the same as the desire that leads to suffering of tanha. So I would um, say that there's, we kind of have to tease desire out a little bit more. We probably need another whole day just on the theme of desire. Thank you. Comments, questions? Please. So when you... begin to notice the arising and passing of phenomena, thoughts, sensations in the body. Is it uh, profitable to take an experience in its totality and to see it arising and passing? For example, sitting amidst this room, you can pick up a lot of sounds. To take in all the sound, to take in the sensation of the body, to take in felt experience in the body and as a totality to see that as a moment arising and passing. Okay, you're asking an extremely profound question. And um, for those of you that didn't hear in the back, um, he's asking if when observing the arising and passing of phenomenon, if it's useful to take an experience in its totality to observe arising and passing. For example, um, the experience of, say, hearing sounds, all the different sounds, the experience of the body and the impact of the sounds and the sensations and the heat and the cold and the various thoughts about the sound and the mental states and the moods, all of that coming together. Is that what we're supposed to see arising and pass away? Now, this is an extremely profound question because it, um, it points to what are the most powerful objects for insight practice. What is arising and passing? The tradition has described a difference between what are called concepts and reality. And I go into this in great detail in the um, Wisdom Wide and Deep book. So what are concepts and what is reality? Now, those are kind of funny terms, and probably in the few minutes that I have, I'm not going to do this topic justice. But concepts are, are generally clusters of things, ideas of things that we've put together and labeled as this thing. For example, what is this? It's a bell, right? 
Okay, we know it's a bell because it has a certain function, it has a certain shape, it has a certain color, it has a certain density, it has a certain sound when struck, it's in a certain place. It's a concept. We know it's a bell. What, what is this? It's a chair. Well, a chair has its, 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 its hard, it's made of certain things, it's got color, it's got mass, it's got weight, it's got, um, um, a function, a purpose. So we, we, we know that's a chair. What is this? Oh, it's a body. Okay, it's got feet, it's got flesh, it's got bones, it's got... But when you look closer, this this whole thing, this is a concept body. When we look really close, we might break it down to parts. Okay, there's an ear and there's a nose and there's a finger, which is the body. But then actually finger, nose, ear, these are all still concepts. You break it down even further and you start to see that there are, are, are different constituents that make up this until finally you break it down, break it down, deconstruct the experience of the concept body. And all you find are moments of sensation, perhaps a tingle, a pressure, a heat, cold. The, the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology defines 28 materialities, um, earth, water, fire, and wind properties plus 24 derived materialities. When we look at the mind, we don't just find consciousness. We don't find states of sadness and depression and, um, and um, rage. Actually, we find instead we break down that state of rage and we find that there are 18 to 22 mental factors that must arise and work in consort for this state to arise. So if we really look carefully First, we'll see things arising and passing. We'll look at the body and we'll see that it changes. So we know that. So this thing that we call the body, it gets gray, it needs glasses, you know, it, it, it hairs, it, it, you know, it does its change. So that's one level of seeing impermanence. But there's the possibility with a concentrated mind in deep states of meditation to sometimes see it much more carefully. And then what we see arising and passing away are all the constituent parts of the body and the constituent parts of the mind. We see what are called the paramatta dhammas or the ultimate realities or the irreducible realities or the non-conventional realities, the non-conceptual realities. Basically, the things that cannot, no, can, cannot be reduced any further. We see that even those are impermanent and arising away and arising and passing away. The mental factors of, um, of attention, of perception, of, um, of volition, of, of desire are all just arising and passing away. And when they come together in certain configurations, they create the states that we recognize as anger or desire or envy or fear or loving kindness or um, concentration. And when they, when they come together in different constituents, they make different mental states. So although we don't go through our life divvying up all the different mental states as we're going shopping, um, sometimes you'll be sitting in meditation and you'll see so clearly. You'll not see, I am angry. The I concept will fall away. And then you'll see the anger state. But then the big state of anger will also fall away as a big state, as a concept. And you'll see that there are lots of things that are working together to make that state 
arise. And that each part of that is impermanent and arises and pass away. So you start to sometimes see little glimpses and sometimes for sustained investigations in your meditation practice, actually how this mind and body operate. How perception happens. How when we see, hear, smell, taste, touch things and receive all the impact from our senses and the mind. How we understand them, perceive them and work with them. And how they sometimes give rise to unwholesome states and sometimes give rise to wholesome states so that we begin to negotiate our lives inclining towards the wholesome and diminishing the conditioned patterns that perpetuate the unwholesome. And you, you used in your question asking if it was profitable, which I find to be a very interesting term because there are three... T- one of the things that we look at a lot in meditation, is the state of mind, right? What are called akusala states or kusala states. I usually call them unwholesome or wholesome states. But some translators have preferred um, unprofitable and profitable or unskillful and skillful or unbeneficial and beneficial. And we notice that. That's a lot of why we come to meditate, is we recognize that we want fewer unwholesome states in our lives, and we want to cultivate wholesome states in our lives. And so that's a very powerful motivation for our practice. Well, I want to thank you all for your attention, for sticking with this day of happiness, and I hope you're happy. Or at least have gotten some glimmers of, um, of approaches to happiness and joy within the Buddhist tradition.